Maybe seat him. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to uh, the New Testament book of Matthew. If you're using a pew Bible in the rack in front of you, you can find uh, our text on uh, page 827. 827 in your pew Bibles. We are in uh, Matthew chapter 21, in the middle of the chapter, picking up a the second of three parables. Uh, our parable this morning is the parable of uh, the tenant. Uh, we are in a section of Matthew which Jesus has just entered Jerusalem. He's entered it sort of no holds bars, right? He has come, come in uh, on a, a donkey proclaiming himself to be the heir of the throne of David. He has come in uh, and he has cleared the temple proclaiming himself to be uh, the new and living temple. And then in the courtyards of the temple for the next uh, few chapters, uh, Jesus will be confronted by and confronting the religious leaders over his authority uh, and on to uh, deeper matters that he will lead to in the coming chapters. Uh, in these chapters, uh, we'll find that there's two, three, four chapters that likely all take place on the same day, the same Tuesday afternoon of the final uh, earthly week uh, in the life of Jesus. And uh, here we have these parables in the context of his authority, but really pressing back against the poor use, to put it mildly, of the authority of the current religious leaders uh, in Israel. So as you follow along with me, uh, as we read uh, this next uh, parable uh, in our order, Matthew 21, verses 33 to 46. Here, another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it. And built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they had held him to be a prophet. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me in prayer? Our Lord, we pray this morning you would give us ears to hear. 
I pray that as we come to this parable and others like it, parables of condemnation and judgment, that you would soften even the hardest heart in this room. That you would soften us to see as we have uh, just sung how it was that your son was rejected. And how we, even this very morning, may be guilty of rejecting him as well. Show us the hope of this passage. Show us your love for wayward people. Show us the hopeful, glorious promise of the resurrection of your Son, in whom we have life now and everlasting. Uh, Speak to us, O Lord, in these few minutes, for your people are listening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last night, I got home from a week away of vacation, a wonderful week of rest, time with my family. Uh, you, you know, though, when you get home, you're never quite sure what happened in your house when you're gone, right? Uh, you never know if somebody left some lights on. That wouldn't be so bad. Somebody left the water on. That would be a little bit worse, right? Uh, my house, they confronted me right when I got home that I had completely neglected uh, my little vegetable garden in the backyard. Uh, and it was a disaster, right? Uh, this is the, the time of year when things grow well uh, in these mountains. And what grew well were weeds, right? Uh, there were weeds uh, in the garden. The plants weren't following the, the wires they were supposed to follow. It was uh, unwatered, withered leaves. We even had somebody come over and surprise us by checking on the garden. And it was still a mess when I got home. And guess who I had to blame for it? Me. <laughs> right. There's nobody else to blame for the neglect uh, of my garden on my week of vacation but me. Here we come to another garden disaster. But this time it's not the master who is to blame for the mess that's happened uh, in the garden. There is somebody else who's, upon whose shoulders the blame squarely falls uh, in this text. I want you to see, as we have already seen in Matthew's gospel, the fault of the religious leaders who are rejecting Jesus and leading people away from Christ. Jesus is patient. He is taking his time. Uh, But as Jim said last week, he is off the on-ramp. He is fully on the highway. This is the week. This is when he confronts the religious leaders. This is when he goes all the way to his death. What I want you to see is in the midst of God's wrath, His rightful and just, righteous judgment on the rebellious leaders. We see in these verses his continued mercy for his own people. The prophet prayed that God in his wrath would remember mercy. Here we have in this account God in his wrath on his chosen leaders remembering his mercy on his chosen people. I want to show you that tension in the text. How God's wrath on his chosen leaders comes, and yet in the midst of that, he remembers mercy on his chosen people. The way the text breaks down is there is a parable of rejection, followed by an explanation of how God responds to that rejection. So that's how we're going to take the text this morning in two parts. First, the rejection of the leaders, and secondly, response of the Lord, or verses 33 to 39, the leader's rejection. Verses 41 to 44, the Lord's response. The parable is a parable of tenants rejecting their master. 
rejecting the purpose of the very vineyard they have been placed in to work. We have a tension in these first six verses or so between the master on one side and the tenants, those hired to care for the vineyard on the other side. And the distinction is clear. The master is shown to be faithful and the tenants are shown to be unfaithful or faithless in their care for the vineyard. And it goes back and forth. We see the master's character, and then we see the tenant's character. Then we see the master, then we see the tenants. Three times we go back and forth. I want you to just follow me in this parable as we see who the master is, and then as we see who the tenants are. First, the master is shown to us uh, in the first verse to be marked by love. The first trait of this master is one of love for this vineyard. Look how it begins. The master planted the vineyard. He put a fence around it. He protected it. He dug a wine press in it that it would produce uh, wine. And he built a tower over it, a watchtower, to keep an eye uh, on protecting this vineyard. He leased it to tenants, and he went into another country. That is, he hired workers who would tend and work the field, who would reap the fruit, return it to the master, and take a portion for themselves. Pretty straightforward contract of work and employment in the ancient Near East. The master, though, shows his love for this vineyard and he he lick all of the wonderful things he does for it. he plants it he puts the fence around it he protects it he puts the vineyard in it he puts the uh, he puts the wine press excuse me he builds the tower in it apparently in those days a new vineyard would take at least four years to produce fruit so now he's investing in it with no return he's waiting patiently and trusting the care of the vineyard to the tenants now he's using this parable to say something about his hearers in the moment and how they're like someone in this parable. Before we get to what they're like, just think about what the master is like in this parable. Jesus doesn't pull out uh, the image of a vineyard out of nowhere. Uh, He gets it from Old Testament prophecies, particularly Isaiah 5. We read this in Isaiah 5. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, And cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. Sounds exactly like what the master has done in the parable, doesn't it? The parable shows us a master doing the very thing that God is described as doing in Isaiah 5. And just in case we're unclear about who's who in the parable, Isaiah goes on to say in Isaiah 5 verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. That the vineyard in Isaiah 5, in Matthew 21, in the parable, is the house of Israel. And that God in his love plants his people like a vineyard, like a garden. He tends them. He cares for them. He protects them. He puts good and righteous, supposedly, leaders over them to care for them unto the time when the fruit is ripe and the master returns. So just the image itself, that the, the, the leaders in the temple hearing this parable would have thought of Isaiah 5, would have thought of this image of the nation of Israel like the planted vineyard. What happens next then would surprise the hearers just as it surprises us. The master sends his servants to go and get the fruit of the vineyard. Verse 34, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. This should be a very simple story. So they gave him the fruit and they went home and took it to the master, right? That's what's supposed to happen. That's what's in the contract. 
Instead, we read verse 35, and the tenants took his servants. They beat one, they killed another, and they stoned another. This initial rejection. The leaders of the vineyard don't want to give up the fruit of the vineyard. And so they reject the servant sent by the master to come and collect the fruit that's rightfully his. They beat them. They stone them, which is a form of killing them. And then, in case you weren't clear on what happened, the third verb, they actually killed him. Now, what would a master do in response? It's his field. He's out four years of finances and caring for the field. It's time for him finally to get the fruit of the vine. And his own servants have been beaten up and murdered. What does he do? Here we see another trait of the master, and that is his patience, because he sends more servants. He sends more servants right back, not just a second time. He sends the same amount plus more, right? The meaning here begins to be made clear as we look at the history of Israel, that the master caring for the vineyard that he planted, his own people, would routinely send prophets with the message of the gospel, the message of faith in God and his Messiah, and the message of repentance for their sin, to trust in God, to trust in his Messiah, and live faithfully and fruitfully as his people. However, when we read the pages of the Old Testament, we see that sometimes the prophets of God are received joyously by the nation, but oftentimes they're rejected. Their message is ignored. They're mocked. They're made fun of. And in in extreme circumstances, they're put to death. And so as we track, as we map this parable on the history of Israel, we're now in the stage where God has planted his people. He has assigned leaders to care for them. And when he sends his prophets to bring his word to them, those very leaders reject, stone, and kill the prophets. God sending repeatedly his messengers to his people shows the patience and the forbearance and the long-suffering of God. Paul writes of this in Romans 2. He speaks of the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. He describes God as who God is. He is kind. He is patient. He bears with his own children, even as they are rebelling against him, even as they are rejecting his very messengers. God continues to be kind and patient. Paul goes on to say in Romans 2, verse 4, the riches of God's kindness kindness and patience are meant to lead you to repentance. The tenants, hopefully, had a hard time falling asleep that first night after they killed someone, right? You would think their conscience would be somewhat pricked. Maybe they would feel a little bit of guilt. And maybe as they would await the wrath that would come from the master to whom they owe the fruit of the field, instead of getting wrath, they see patience. They see more messengers coming, not soldiers, right? Not the wrath of the master, but more messengers coming to collect the fruit. And maybe in these moments, as they observe the patience and kindness of God, their hearts, instead of hardening in rejection, begin to soften. That when we don't get in this life what we so deserve right now because of our sin, It's not because God's letting us off the hook. It's because he is so patient with us that we might in time be led to repentance. Let me think for a moment. Consider what you actually deserve in this life. We live 
amongst a lot of entitled people, and we can get pretty entitled ourselves, can't we? But when we think about our own sinful disobedience and rebellion against God, what is it that we actually deserve? And yet, how has God been patient towards you? How has God extended days and weeks and months and years of his kindness towards you? How have you rejected him in thought, word, and deed, and yet he continues to send his messengers of gospel hope into your heart and into your life? Consider if you have actually received in this world what you deserve. Because right now, in this stage, in the parable, none of these guys have. (laughs) They keep getting more patience and more kindness. And yet, their hearts are hardening. It's the scariest part, isn't it? They do it again. They face the most patient, gracious master imaginable. And they think to themselves, yeah, let's just kill his servants again. (laughs) Because more come. And they do the same thing in verse 36. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, and you're thinking to yourself, finally, he rides in on a war horse, right? (laughs) Finally, he comes and he burns the thing down and he slays all of these guys who have been killing his servants. No, finally, what does he do? He sent his son to them saying they will respect my son. Now, i got to be honest. Have, I have read this and thought, yeah, that master's kind of naive, right? I mean, come on. I mean, are you kidding? They're gonna, they're, they killed everybody else. They're going to respect the son? Here I want you to see the extreme mercy of our God. Every single one of us would have said, yeah, now is time. That's it. You had your chances. You're out. But God, in his infinite kindness, continues to extend mercy to them. I mean, kids, you know when mom and dad tell you to do something and you don't do it, and they say, well, I'm going to count to three. You're thinking, okay, all right, get it, get it, come back together by the time mom gets to three, right? I mean, it feels like God's counting to four, he's counting to five, he's counting to seven. I mean, when's he going to stop, right? He just keeps going. And he sends his very son to them. Why is God not, in fact, naive here? but something very different. We read in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why is God so patient? Why is the master so patient with these rebellious tenants that they might reach repentance? That they might come to an end of themselves. They might see the depths of their sin and rebellion and rejection. And God comes to them this final time by sending his son. Matthew doesn't say it here. Luke describes him as the beloved son. The master sends the beloved son. And here we see the descent of the character and the rebellion and the hardening of the tenants. Verse 40. I'm sorry, verse 38. When the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. 
their rationale here makes no sense. Just within the narrative of the parable, how the, the, if the heir dies, how do the murderers of the heir become the heirs of the inheritance? That doesn't make any sense. Sin doesn't really make sense, right? Rebellion against the creator of the universe doesn't really make sense. If you think back about what, how you sinned this week, is it logical? Usually not, right? You can explain it, but it's not all that logical. The sinfulness of sin, the illogical rebellion of sin. And what, what, what Jesus would have us see in this parable is the repeated hardening and rejection of these tenets. It shows us the repeated hardening and rejection of the current leaders of Israel. Those who are hearing the words of Jesus are in the place of the tenants. It is, his, it is God's vineyard. He is sending to his vineyard and to those tenants, to those religious leaders of the day, prophets and prophets and prophets, and they don't turn and they don't repent. And finally, he's going to send them his own son. And what are they going to do to the son? Jesus has already told us. They're going to reject him and they're going to kill him. The picture is the long-suffering, kind, patient God repeatedly appealing to a hardening and rebellious people. You remember from last week, the audience here are the leaders trying to challenge and trick Jesus in the temple on the topic of who has the authority. Same thing happens in Isaiah 5. The context here is, G, is the prophet's rejection of Israel's unfaithful leaders. Now, this text is primarily spoken towards those who were leaders at that day in that place, but it doesn't let the people off the hook, and it doesn't let, let us off the hook. The God is sending repeatedly his agents, his mouthpieces, his heralds, including finally his own son, to appeal to a prodigal people. A hardened people, a people with their back turned towards him, a people thumbing their nose at him. Is your heart hardening towards the Lord today? I mean, you may be thinking, you're, I'm here, Pastor, so I'm fine. Let me warn you, you're not. Where were these leaders? They were in the temple. They were physically right there, but their heart could not be further from him. Is your heart growing just a little bit harder? Is the sin that you sh should have been convicted over, for some reason it doesn't convict you anymore? That bit by bit, your back turns more and more to the Lord. The things in his word and in his presence that once gave you joy are nothing to you. The word that you were once so eager to read and study and follow and obey now seems lifeless to you. That the God who you once saw as patient and loving and kind and merciful now is just another restriction on your life you cannot wait to get away from. The Lord sends his servants over and over and over again. And if you're here today, it's because he sends that message to you one more time. You don't know if you will hear it next week. You don't know if you will be here next week. But the Lord is calling you not to reject the son, but to receive the son. 
Not to reject the gospel, but to receive the gospel. Not to stand on your own strength, not to go your own way, not to trust uh, in your own idols, but to relent and to repent and to refrain and to return to Christ. Do you see the Lord's kindness? Do you see his patience that is intended to lead you to repentance, to soften that hardening heart? Even as the leaders argued and tricked and aimed to reject Jesus, here he is once again showing them the path of life, showing them the hope of the gospel. But at some point, the owner has to come, right? At some point, the owner is going to stop sending people to this rebellious vineyard, and he's going to come himself. So Jesus asked them the question in verse 40. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Now, Jesus is a master teacher. He doesn't tell them what the owner will do. He asks them. He's getting them to condemn themselves, which is pretty incredible, right? So the leaders reject Jesus. What's the Lord's response? Verses 41, we pick it up. Here is Jesus, the master teacher. He asks them, what will the master do? They give him two things the master will do. He agrees and he adds a third. That's how the conversation goes. Right? They say, well, he's going to punish those wretches, verse 41, going to give away the vineyard to somebody else. God agrees with both of these. And then the Lord's going to add a third response. Walk with me through these real quick. Number one, God will punish the leaders. God will punish the unfaithful leaders. This is pretty obvious. I mean, you're reading this and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, when's judgment going to come? I mean, when are these guys going to get what is coming to them? When are they going to get their due? You can't treat anybody like this. When is justice going to come? And the leaders themselves recognize that the tenants should be punished. Apparently, at this point, they don't know it's about them. They'll know it in a little bit, but apparently they don't yet know it's about them. And so they say, verse 41, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. And these guys have no grace in them, do they? (laughs) What does justice demand in this situation? Demands what they get. There's often a a spirit of questioning the justice of God. And is punishment, is the wrath of God, is his righteous justice, is hell itself, isn't that just a little unfair? Isn't that all just a little too much? Isn't God just going a little too far? And then you read an account like this. And you're confronted with true evil, with real rebellion, and even the wicked and evil ones can see the need for justice, the need for punishment, the need for wrath in order that justice might be served. What's telling is that they focus on what God will do to those wretches, as they call it, how God will put them to a miserable death. I mean, these are some pretty vengeful guys. But when Jesus affirms what they say, but then he adds his own words to it, look what he says down in verse 43. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. They emphasize the death that they deserve. Jesus emphasizes the taking away of the kingdom, the separation of the leaders from the vineyard. This is Jesus's point in his mercy towards the vineyard, in his mercy towards his people. He will remove from them corrupt unfaithful, abusive leaders. They are removed from the people. And then they are put to death 
as the leaders so rightly prophesy. The stark warning here is that God does not look kindly on unfaithful leaders. That God has appointed people over his own flock, under shepherds, guardians, servants. And he does not look kindly upon those who mistreat his own children. That God will bring justice and he will bring vengeance and he will bring wrath. That God is, holds precious to his heart his own church, his own people, the little ones, the little children, the vulnerable ones, as we have seen time and time again in Matthew. And he does not look kindly on these unfaithful leaders. But in God's wrath on them, he remembers his mercy on his people. That's the second response we see. That's that God will transfer the vineyard. The leaders will be removed and then new leaders will be brought in. Again, look at the end of verse 31. He will, 41. He will let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. And then verse, the end of verse 43. And given to a people producing its fruits. This is the only logical sense, right? It's his vineyard and he deserves and wants the fruit that comes from it. The tenants are preventing that from happening. So we need more servants, more leaders over God's people such that they would produce the fruits that God so desires. The people produce the fruit in this illustration. This signals a shift, a shift in the leadership of the people of God. That the nation of God no longer is sort of restricted and walled off to a certain national and ethnic people group. That it is now expanded to people from all nations and all tribes and all peoples under leadership of people from all tribes and all nations and all peoples. Such that the fruit that God so desires, the fruit of faith, the fruit of trust in Christ is brought in when the master returns. God's focus after the resurrection remains on a nation, but it is now a nation. It is now a people composed of people from all the nations who bear the fruit in keeping with repentance. Those leaders failed, so God will bring in new leaders to lead the vineyard to produce the fruit. Now, both of these make sense. This is the most natural response as you read the parable. This is the response that the leaders expected, right? Take the old leaders out, put the new leaders in. Of course, they didn't know they were talking about themselves yet. But there's a third response. Missing in all of this is justice for the son. The beloved son of the master has been unceremoniously and unjustly murdered. So here is the third response. Here is the most important of all the responses. And that is that God will vindicate the son. God will vindicate the son. We get a new image here. We switch from the image of the field, the agricultural image, to a building imagery, to a stone that's been rejected. This new metaphor Jesus switches to, he pulls from Psalm 118 that Wilson read earlier in the service to explain what's going on with this rejected son. And there's two parts here. The stone that the builders rejected, part one, has become the cornerstone, part two. The builders have rejected a stone. I want you to picture it for a moment. Men building a wall or a house or whatever with 
stones. And they're pulling up different stones to see if they, they fit. They're going to go to the right place on the wall. Some stones don't work. They put back. They switch to others. And they go on and on. But there's one stone that it's not getting used, right? Or maybe you can picture, maybe not masons, maybe kids playing with Legos, right? Uh, or maybe adults that play with their kids' Legos. Uh, and you dads out there, right? You dump out the Legos and you're trying to build your cool castle or spaceship or whatever it is. And you have to find just the right Lego. And you pull out and one's the wrong color or it's too small or your, your younger sister chewed all over it. And it's, you, know, you can't use that Lego, right? You keep throwing stuff back. And there's the one that's rejected that nobody wants, that nobody uses, right? The stone that is rejected. In Psalm 118, the rejected stone that nobody wants is Israel. Nobody wants Israel. She's humble. She's poor, weak. But here, Jesus says that he is the stone. He is the rejected son, obviously in the parable. But he is also the rejected stone. That he comes and he walks in Israel's footsteps. He walks and he is humble and he is weak and he is poor and he is needy. And he is rejected. He is rejected by the nation itself. He's rejected by the very people who were supposed to receive him. The people rejected the stone. And yet, as the psalm says, as the prophecy goes, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Has become the most important stone. The one that nobody wanted, the stone that doesn't matter, is now the only stone that matters. The one that nobody wanted is now the one that nobody can live without. The rejection of the stone, the rejection of the son, is his murder, is his death, is his crucifixion. The elevation of the rejected stone to become the cornerstone is the resurrection. And in the resurrection of Christ is the salvation of the nations. And as the psalm says, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord alone raises the rejected stone to become the cornerstone. God vindicates the son. The innocent one is vindicated and justice prevails. Now as the words of Jesus come to an end, we read about what will happen with this vindicated son. We read in verse 44, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. He is no longer the object of judgment. He's no longer the one being judged. He is now the one doing the judging. And to come into contact, to come in rebellion against this son, this stone leads to destruction. Shattered, broken to pieces, crushed. The stone either saves or crushes. The message to a people who are rejecting the son and rejecting the stone is clear as a bell on the lips of Jesus. It is repent. Repent of your sin. Repent of your rejection. Repent of your rebellion. There is no victory here. The tenants who thought they would somehow get the fruit of the field, that's not happening, right? Only judgment is coming on them. Those who reject the stone because it is worthless and go on to build their kingdoms and their homes and their lives without him will be crushed upon his Return. To ignore Christ is to stand with the tenants in the field. To ignore Jesus is to stand with the hardened religious leaders. You may not have been part of the crowd 
that cried for his death. You may not have been part of the jury that decided upon his death. You may not have been one of the centurions who was guilty of putting him to death. But to reject Jesus is to stand with them. And it's to reject the stone both now and forever. The hope of this passage is that the corner, that he is now the cornerstone. He has been raised and he sits on his throne forever and one day every tongue will confess and every knee will bow in submission for he is Lord. Jesus could not have been clearer with these words and yet how do they respond? The final two verses show how they respond, how hard their hearts are. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived he was speaking about them. Finally, guys, (laughs) finally, you're paying attention. Finally, you know that he's talking about you. And yet, verse 46, they still seek to arrest him. Even when they know what the parable means. (laughs) Even when they know he's talking about them, they miss it. The tenants miss it. The builders miss it. The leaders miss it. They miss him. Do you? Because in God's wrath, He always remembers his mercy. In the flood, he sent the ark. In the night of the death of the firstborn in Egypt, he sent the lamb and the blood. And in the wrath that is to come, he sends Christ. Flee to him today. Receive the son. He has become the cornerstone. It is marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray. Our Lord, give us ears to hear this morning. Speak to us, O God, that we would hear and we would know that you are the gracious and patient and kind master, that your son is the faithful one who has come to die in our place, and that though we are a rebellious and hard-hearted people, You give and you extend to us this very day the precious gift of repentance and faith. Lord, soften our hearts now that we might believe. Turn us back from our rebellion. Show us your kindness that is meant to lead to repentance, that we might, in fact, following the urging of your spirit, return to you in joy, in hope, in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.